Father, we just give you such thanks today. Um, as Liz said in, in the last song we sang, that you will be put on the cross as a thief, totally misunderstood, unjustly killed by the world, the world you came to save. And actually, in the process of dying sacrificially for this world, um, that would be the, the key to unlocking salvation for all. Um, thank you for this time, Lord. Thank you for this new community that you're rooting in Brooklyn. Uh, root the vision that you're giving this church into every single heart, every single person here. Root the vision of being a people that we say there's room at the table. Um, we love you so much, Lord. Bless our time today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, another welcome again. Um, my name is Russell. I'm one of the pastors here. If it's your first time, thanks so much for joining us. As, excuse me, <laughs> don't know what that was. As Nathan said, uh, we are a church plant and we're in our preview season. And so we're discovering what that means um, to, to lead a community. And more important than that, this is the time where you guys sort of internalize the vision. Uh, and so what we've been doing is we've been going through our vision statement. It's five lines long as a way to, to present, this is who God is calling Hope Brooklyn to be. And today is actually the last Sunday of the series. Um, next week, I just wanna replug it again, again. Baptism is an incredibly special time. So if you're able to, if you don't have any plans next Sunday afternoon, show up. It is a, it is a powerful experience uh, to participate in as a community. And so I just wanna jump right in today because it's the last Sunday of the series. Can I get a woot woot for that? Yeah. So this is our vision statement. This is what Hope Brooklyn is all about. Hope Brooklyn is a diverse community that eats together. As we said, that's our three pillars. God is creating us, we are not creating ourselves. We are a diverse community and all its various forms that diversity can take and the primary function that binds us together is that we share a meal. At the table, we come face to face with Jesus and one another. Through a shared meal, authentic community, and the narrative of Jesus, we are transformed. So we live lives of imperfect love and reckless generosity, engaging our neighborhoods and Brooklyn and beyond according to the gospel of grace. And what we're taking on today, because God invited us freely to his table, all are invited to ours. If you know nothing else about Hope Brooklyn, know that last line, because God invited us freely to his table all are invited to ours. Can you turn to your neighbor and say there's room at the table? I, ne I never, I vowed I would never do that and I just did it, you know? Oh my goodness. There's room at the table, all right? There is room at the table, there's room at the table. If you're debating whether you wanna get a tattoo or not, get one that says there's room at the table. That is the core of who we are. That is the core of what we're called to be. Um, so a story sort of to start us off. When I was in seminary, uh, as a, a way to sort of pay the bills and to um, pay the cost of seminary, I was a bartender, actually, at a small craft beer shop. So just so you know, it wasn't a dive bar or anything like that. It was, it was, a, it was a bottle shop, actually, that sold craft beer, and they had a couple kegs that you could sample the beer um, as you were shopping. And it was so much fun, because I'm from the South. I'm from North Carolina. And without fail, how conversations would go is uh, I'd be meeting a, a patron and um, they'd be talking and it'd be a great conversation. They'd be like, well, so do, you, do you do anything else? Are you in school or something? And I'd be like, yeah, I'm, I'm in seminary. 
what, so you're like, you're training to be a pastor? Yeah. <laughs> Stunned. One of two things would happen. Either the conversation would abrupt, abruptly end and they're done, or they'd be like, whoa, and they'd proceed to give me their philosophy of life. And it was so much fun. And what I found, what I found is that the current age, specifically in the South, but I think all across this country, we are in a dualistic age. We, we are in a very polarized age. And as it relates to the church, the church is a good place and the world is a bad place. The church is us and the world is them. And it was funny, there was one guy at the, uh, at, at the shop, his name was Wade. And Wade worked at a pizza shop right across the street. And he would get off his shift and he would come across uh, to, to the pub, to the bottle shop. And he'd always bring me a piece of pizza and I'd give him a beer. And, um, and we'd talk. And it was so funny. Um, when he discovered that I was a Christian and training to be a pastor, he about fell out of his seat. And he, you know, the first thing he said is, hey, I'm an atheist, just so you know. Like, That's cool, man, you know. Uh, we can still have a conversation. And we would talk about life. We would talk about philosophy. We would talk about literature. We'd talk about art. Um, he'd ask questions. I'd ask, ask him questions. And it was such a wonderful um, time. He became a really good friend. I don't think he became a Christian when I left working at the, at the shop, but I do think something really important happened. His conception of Christians was broken down. It was disassembled. The baggage that sometimes go because he actually, for the first time, met a Christian that he didn't hate or a Christian that didn't square up with what he thought all Christians were. And that was really uh, important, and I think it started stirring something in me. So, take a little history lesson for us, a brief one. We are, in America, the product of a project called the Enlightenment. Anyone heard of the Enlightenment before? All those thinkers in the 16th, 17th century, and the Enlightenment did many things. But one of the most important things it did, especially for our purposes, is that it kind of cut off the heavens from the earth. It, it eliminated all sense of mystery. Before the Enlightenment, a human worldview was very um, able and willing to, to uh, affirm a sense of mystery, to say, hey, this rock over here, this could be an enchanted rock, right? Or, or like it was not a, uh, a weird thing to affirm miracles or the miraculous. But at the Enlightenment, we sort of cut off the heavens. The heavens does not come into the earthly realm and the earthly realm doesn't go into the heavenly realm. And so what we did was we, we sort of created this closed natural order and we started exploring so as to explain it. Exploring so as to create a sense of mastery in it. There's actually a really interesting theory uh, by a scholar and she contends that the enlightenment was precipitated by the invention of the telescope. And the reason why, she goes, that was the first time in human history we discovered that things are not as they seem. We could look into uh, the galaxies, the universe, the, the planets and the stars, and we discovered that we thought it was this, but it's not this, it's actually that. So then that started our questioning of, well, if this isn't this, if this is that, what else is not as it seems? 
and we just, the rise of skepticism and the rise of doubt and taken to its logical end, we have Descartes' famous, or famous um, um, affirmation of, I think, therefore I am. Am I what I seem? That's basically the enlightenment. The enlightenment created um, this, this skeptical place of we can't trust anything, we need to question everything. And part of that was, because it cut off the heavens from the earth, it separated facts, and by facts it meant empirical, uh, scientifically proven facts from everything else, from values. And religion, of course, went in the values department. And unfortunately, the church accepted these terms. We did. For the church uh, in the 16th century onward, and this is probably, you know, some churches, if you grew up in the church, you might have experienced this. Belief became a private matter. It became something that just affected me. The church, the church building, became the only place where the heavens and the earth met. Outside of that building, the church, or God, did not work. And Christians, we sort of retreated from the world, from the dangerous world, and we found solace among ourselves is what happened. Now, hopefully, if you've been a part of this community for a while, you realize that in all three of those ways, the gospel fundamentally does not accept that. The gospel is not and has never been a private matter. The gospel is a cosmic proclamation. As Leslie Newbegin says, Paul, and Paul was one of the first church planters in, in the New Testament. Paul presents himself not as the teacher of a new theology, but as the messenger commissioned by the authority of the Lord to announce a new fact, namely that in the ministry, the death and the resurrection of a historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth, God has acted decisively to reveal and redeem the whole world. The gospel has never been a private thing. It's always been a story that is happening out there. It's a public fact. It's a revelation that affects the entire world. Point number two, that, that God only acts within the church. Well, one, that misunderstands the nature of the church as we talked about. The church has never been a building. The Greek word for church means people. So it's a gathering of people. It's people that comprise the church. But in Romans 1, we get the passage that Paul's saying, for what can be known about God is plain to the world. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. God has never been just at work inside the church. He's always been at work in the world. He's always been able to be seen. His fingerprints, his residue is everywhere. And finally, uh, the point that, um, that Christians sort of retreated and found solace among themselves, when you look at Jesus, Jesus was crucified by the powers that be. Now, just so you know, no one is ever executed for being a spiritual guru preaching a privatized religion. What does Rome care if this guy named Jesus is just preaching a, a, a private experience of grace? No, you're executed because you're a political threat to the powers that be. And they got it exactly right. Jesus was crucified 
because he was a threat to the power structures, because he wasn't preaching a private religious experience. He was preaching a new kingdom. And it was a really good kingdom, but it was also gonna destroy all the old kingdoms. And those in power in the old kingdoms did not want that to happen. You're never executed for being a spiritual guru. You're executed because you're a political threat. Or as C.S. Lewis says, Christianity is kind of, it's the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say, landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. The heavens and the earth were created by one God and it was good. But then the angels rebelled, the heavens rebelled. And God gave over the earth as the realm of the fallen angels, of which we are part. But rather than abandon the fallen earth, God has come, he's landed. The rightful king has landed, landed in disguise. He snuck past everyone as a man. And he's reclaimed the world back for the heavens. And now he's inviting all to take part in this grand campaign of sabotage. It's a revolution. But again, when I use these terms, they, they, they connote a violence, but the gospel is not a violent gospel. The revolution we engage in is one of peace and one of grace and one of forgiveness, one that would rather be struck on the, both cheeks than strike you back. But it is a revolution. See, belief in Jesus' story, belief in his good news has never been, as Nathan said, a cognitive assent to like propositions, to bullet points. Oh, okay, I, I accept this one. No, I, I disagree with that one. That's not what the gospel is at all. It is recognition that the story is happening in the world. And it is discovering that it's still going on and I'm in it. You're in this story. When you read the Bible and you get to the end of Revelation, it's not something that happened back then. It's something that's still going on. You're in the chapter right between Jude and Revelation, so to speak. Now, so no one's written that chapter and put it in the Bible yet, but it's being written with your life. It's being written with churches all across the world. Christian, Christianity with the Enlightenment became a document that we ascribe to. But the gospel has always been a pair of glasses by which we see the world, by which we see ourselves, by which we see one another. Or as C.S. Lewis says again, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see all things. The gospel is that the king has returned to his world. The earth couldn't keep the heavens out. Any Chronicle, uh, Chronicles of Narnia fans in here? Yeah. The gospel is when Mr. Beaver looks at the four kids and goes, Aslam is on the move. He's on his way. That's the gospel. Man, I used to, I'm choking up right now as so I'm saying that. It used to always make me cry. The gospel is that there's something happening in the world, independent of whether you receive it or not. Aslan is on the move. He's coming back. He's already back. And it's discovering our place within this story. The heavens have returned, but amazingly, not with a vindictive spirit, but with love. Now make no mistake, as we talked last week, love is costly. And we discover 
as we read this story and find our place in it, just how costly it is, we discover that we contributed to the cost of this love. But it is love. The gospel is, friends, because God invited us freely to his table. All are invited to ours. That is the place that we have been left. That is the role left for the church. The church is the people on mission to invite all to the table. And if we, if we only stay huddled together, it's because we're afraid of getting dirty. But the gospel is that we're dirty unless we're with Jesus. See, the Pharisees stayed huddled together. They stay huddled together in their religiousness, but Jesus was already out in front of them, going. So the gospel is that we're dirty unless we're with Jesus, unless we're going where he's going. And Jesus usually goes to the places and the people that the Pharisees are like, ah, should we go there? Are you sure about this, Jesus? (laughs) Okay. When we tell the gospel story, when we recount the public proclamation, the cosmic proclamation of it all, we find our place in it. And do you know what the church is called to be? There's a word. There's one word that's used over and over. This is who Jesus' followers are called to be in the world. Witnesses. We are called to be witnesses. And what does it mean to be a witness? To witness something is to see something, to experience something, to not necessarily know what you just saw or experienced. It is not to possess all the truth. It is to say, I saw something, I experienced something, and that something is better than anything else I've ever seen or experienced. And I'm going after that. I don't have all the truth, I can't understand it all because I'm also part of the story that's not over yet. But we are witnesses to the reality that God is throwing a feast and all are invited to it. Christians are not called to be saviors. We're not called to be imperialists. We're not called to be theologians. We're not called to be builders. And we're not called to be bouncers of this party. We are called to be witnesses to the story. When, with, going back to Wade and I at, the, uh, at, the, at the, um, the bottle shop, I didn't have all the answers to his questions. I was very honest about it. He didn't have all the answers to my questions. I'm not called to have all the answers to questions. I'm called to answer as much as I can, to see as far as I can see, and to speak to that level that I can see and no more. It's not up to me. Jesus is the savior, not me. I love this quote from Cardinal Suhard who says, to be a witness does not consist in engaging in propaganda, nor even in stirring people up, but in being a living mystery. To be a witness is to be a living mystery. It means to live in such a way that one's life would not make sense if God did not exist. To be a witness is to live in such a way that your life would not make sense unless the story you're witnessing to was true. Can I say that about myself? Is my life intelligible to the world unless the story that I claim to be witnessing to of Jesus is true. When we go to our jobs, do the way we live our lives communicate that there's room at God's table and that it's free of charge? Does our life make sense if God did not exist? And as I sort of 
examine the gospel narrative and as I examine uh, the saints of old and as I examine churches and church history, there's a, there's a common theme that I notice in all the best witnesses. All the witnesses that you look at and you're like, there's, there's a living mystery there. There's a living mystery. All the best stories that sort of uh, epitomize this gospel narrative, this gospel witness. And it's this one word. And it's a great sentence I found uh, from a guy named G.K. Chesterton. He goes, you know what the gigantic secret of Christianity is? It's joy. Joy is the gigantic secret of Christianity. Joy, despite all the odds, despite all the facts, is the gigantic secret that makes us into living witnesses. Or I should say living mysteries. That makes us into a people that others look at and be like, hey, this doesn't square up. At, at the end of Luke's gospel, after Jesus has been raised from the dead and he's about to, he's about to leave his disciples and commission them to start planting churches, he says this, he goes, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The story must be fulfilled. The prophecies must be fulfilled, and they have been. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He opened their minds to put on the glasses to see the world. And he said to them, thus it is written, the Messiah was to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. You don't understand it all, but you're witnesses to them. And see, I am sending upon you what my father promised, the Holy Spirit. So stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And then he led them out as far as Bethany, lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he withdrew from them, was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. Christians, Jesus followers, we are called to orient ourselves around his table, around Jesus' story with humility and honesty and recognize that the gospel means that the invitation is open to every single person to join the table, that Jesus is the one inviting and we're just witnessing to what he's done in us and is doing through us and how these glasses color everything about how we see the world. And it fills us. It fills us. I think anyone here who's been a Christian who's followed Jesus for a period of time, it fills us with insane amounts of joy. Even I would be loved. I would have a part in this story. And the facts of the matter is it's, it's not necessarily calling us to uh, a glowing place. It's calling us to a life of service. But see, that's the part that made Christians throughout history living witness, living mysteries. Because these Christians took such joy in serving people. The first Christians who were persecuted and killed by Rome, and I don't know if you know this, but the Greek word for witness is martyros. It's where we get martyr from. To be a witness ended up, uh, uh, as the word evolved, to mean to be killed for what you're witnessing to. And the first Christians who were killed in the Colosseum, as, as a famous Roman historian named Tertullian 
who ended up becoming a Christian said, he goes, I was so confused watching them die because they died with such love. He couldn't describe it. Who would go to their deaths with such joy? Who would go to their deaths not cursing those killing them, but blessing them? Who would enter into this life, which is a call to service, which to follow Jesus is a very exacting, costly life of picking up the cross? Who would do that and experience such freedom and say, there's nothing else I want? To witness with deep joy is to be the living mystery to the world. I've talked about my brother before, but like anytime I'm depressed or, or I'm experiencing, I don't know, something off in my life, I just look at him and he reminds me the gospel is true. My brother, uh, until the age of 27, was not a Christian. And I mean, he would say this about himself. He was lost. He was mean. He was cruel. He was unhappy. He had a girlfriend who, who later became his wife for seven years before he became a Christian. I never saw him once look at her with affection. I never saw him once hold her hand. He was just angry. And then he had a radical encounter with Jesus. And now I can't see him without him laughing. <laughs> he treats his wife with incredible affection, too much affection now. <laughs> but I look at this man and I know what he was and I know who he is and he's saying, I don't understand it all, but it's, it has something to do with this guy, Jesus. And as a pastor, <laughs> my mind is blown. I'm like, this gospel must be true because no one goes from this to that overnight. We are witnesses Nothing else. You're not called to have all the truth. You're called to be witnesses to as much as you've seen and experienced. And what we've seen and experienced, what makes us into living mysteries, is this incredible joy that we can't name or understand because it's a joy that comes from the heavens. And so how do we do that at Hope Brooklyn? If this is the last day of our vision series, how do we create this, this level of witness? Enter tables. You've heard me talk about tables before. Tables are the way that Hope Brooklyn witnesses with deep joy. Tables are the way that we subvert this enlightenment culture with the feast. We subvert the, the enlightenment terms with the feast. We fulfill what Jesus has asked us to do. What are tables? Tables are kind of like our small groups, but essentially tables are food and family with an open invitation. They are groups happening throughout Brooklyn, across New York City, that are a mixture of twofold. They are Hope Brooklyn people, they're you guys, and they're your friends and your neighbors and your colleagues. They are not Bible studies, nor are they devotions, but they are deep conversations. Tables are our attempt to create what Wade and I had at, at, the, at the beer shop. Deep conversations, deep questions, honest conversations, orienting ourselves around Jesus' story. So they're conversations about life and art and politics. They're conversations about our fears, about trying to make it in a city like New York, about our insecurities, about areas in our life that need prayer. And they're praying over that. Tables 
are our way of creating kingdom community throughout New York City. And I would say that kingdom community is the sort that everyone wants it, even if they don't want the kingdom. Like if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you want the type of community that Jesus is establishing, even if you don't want Jesus. Because the community that Jesus is establishing is one premised on grace. It's one premised on truth telling. It's one premised on forgiveness. It's one premised on saying, no matter where you go, I'm going with you. I'm not leaving your side. Tables are the tangible ways that we share our lives, our burdens, that we have organic conversations, authentic community, that we know one another and that we are known by one another through the sacrifice of food and the embodying of the gospel among our friends who don't know the gospel or have false ideas about Christianity. They're at a home or a local restaurant. They could be a group event that maybe uh, a particular table in a neighborhood loves. So maybe uh, there's a, a local shelter uh, that's having a, a food day, uh, serving food to the community. So you go and serve. Maybe it's a beautiful day like today and you wanna have a picnic. So you have a picnic. Tables are the tangible ways that we embody the last line of our vision statement. Because God invited us freely to his table, how could we not invite everyone else to ours? We don't have all the answers. We're not supposed to have all the answers, but we can invite you. And we can gather around food and celebrate with deep joy. Because as, as we said in the sermon a couple weeks back, what we find in this is that our table very quickly becomes his table the table of the story, a face-to-face, -face, authentic, diverse community. And so the blunt takeaway today, the blunt uh, call to action is you need to join a table. I wanna invite you today to join a table. You're given one of those cards uh, on the way in. If you're a Christian here, you need to join a table because it reminds you of your place within the story. Our place is that we are witnesses to Jesus' story. We are inviters to his feast. He's pursuing the world. He's inviting to his table. He's calling us to leave behind our fearful, self-salvific ways and to follow him. And his work is much bigger than us. And we have so much to learn. We, we talk about being a community of crowds and disciples. Tables are one way we do that. And the reason why that's important as Christians is because as Christians, we are not called to possess all the truth. We don't know all the elements of this storyline. Christianity is not a set of propositions that we ascribe to. It's a story that we tell. Or as Leslie Newbegin says, and just so you know, I know I've quoted him a couple times. Leslie Newbegin was a, a missionary, a British missionary in India for 40 years. And then he returned back to, to England and he discovered he never should have left because the Christians in England um, had been compromised in what was asked of them, basically. But he goes, if in affirming what I believe to be truth, I suggest that I possess the truth in such a way that I have nothing more to learn, I am rightly condemned. Christians are not called to possess the truth. Truth is not something to be possessed. Truth is a person in our story. His name is Jesus. So we are, tables are ways that we are disciples and crowds coming together to have real conversations, to have real honest conversations. And just keep in mind, 
when Jesus wanted to transform his disciples, when he called them to follow him, what did he do? He didn't take them out into the woods by themselves for three years and impart knowledge. He called them to follow him and he invited them into ministry. They were discipled by going. That's what tables are. We are discipled. We we are transformed by the story of Jesus by going, by inviting those not like us. I, I, I don't have all the answers. I don't know, but I saw something. I experienced something. It changed me. If you're not a Christian here, I want to invite you to join the table because your questions are needed. Your concerns are needed. Your skepticism is needed. Your qualms about this story are needed. And like I said earlier, the type of community the gospel creates is something we all want, even if we're not ready for the gospel yet. And if you don't know what you are, join a table. (laughs) That's perfect. Just so you know, the gospel allows us to not know fully what we are and still to come. As Paul said, right now, speaking to Christians, he goes, right now, we see through a glass, but dimly. But one day we will see face to face. Right now, we see through a glass, but dimly. Despite what you might have heard, doubts are not the enemy of faith. Arrogant certainty is. Doubts, if you're here today and you're doubting, please know that there is always room at the table for that, for you as you fully are. Doubts are not the enemy of faith. Arrogant certainty is. Because joy is the gigantic secret of Christianity. Christianity.